So I'm asking you, please, if you can, stand up and praise with us. And uh, I would also like to say happy Palm Sunday to each and every one of you. So let's go for this. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah louder than the unbelief. I raise a hallelujah. My weapon is a melody. I raise a hallelujah. Heaven comes to fight for me. Here we go. Singing, I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. Louder and louder, you're going to hear my praises roar. Up from the ashes, hope will arise. Death is defeated, the king is alive. Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to Sunrise this morning. I'm Brent Mullock. I'm one of the pastors here. 
Um, Paul is away this week, um, with a, this weekend, with a group of high school kids skiing, and I told him that we're praying for spiritual conversations and safety. Um, been a long time since I skied, but it was always dangerous when I did, and so we're grateful that Paul has that opportunity to, to minister in that way. Uh, a few announcements we want to make, your, make you aware of. It's Easter week, first of all, and so lots of things going on. Uh, we have an activity right after church today, and so I'll have Megan come up, and she can tell you about that. I won't be real long, because if you were here last week, you heard me a little bit, but I just want to welcome you guys again to stay with us after the service today. Uh, we're going to serve you some food, so we'll sit at the back, and then we're going to have just some fun games and teaching time kind of from up the stage area um, it's going to be a, a good time of fellowship, if anything else. I think it's important as parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, whoever it is, if you're in the life of a, of a child, um, to be shoulder to shoulder with other people. And so um, we're just going to be excited to do that today, grow together, and have some fun. And we might, someone might get a little bit messy. So. All right, that, that fits right in with what we're going to talk about this morning in our message about the importance of being together and fellowshipping together and, and kind of the, the anatomy of a crowd. That's the, that's the theme of this morning. So this week ahead, we're going to have a Good Friday service at 7 o'clock on Friday evening. Uh, just have a time of worship as we remember the crucifixion of Christ, have communion together. And then Easter Sunday, uh, we'll have a, a celebration here. Uh, just looking forward to that. In your bulletin, you'll notice that there's some cards. Um, there's, I think, one in each bulletin, and there's a pile more of them on the information table. And we just would encourage you to, to take those with you and give those out uh, and invite your friends and neighbors and those people that God has put within your sphere of influence. Um, lots and lots of people think about coming to church that don't darken the doors the rest of the year. And so we just need to be God's hands and feet and invite them and, and give them that, that opportunity to come. I wanted to give you a, a quick update on, on Cody Berkmeyer. Um, she's still in the hospital in Greeley. I had a text from, from Chris this morning. Um, they're continuing to try to figure out exactly what the infection is. Um, he said that she had a good night, that she was resting better. Um, they can feel God's working. They appreciate your prayers. They want to express their love to you as, a, as their church family. But continue to keep Cody in her prayers. The, God's working, um, but they still need, they haven't found all the answers yet. And so we want to give you, give you that and let you keep praying. At the end of the service today, I'm going to give you an update on our building. And it's be a little bit longer update, so I didn't want to do that during our, during our announcement time. So let me pray, and then we'll get back to worship. Father, thanks for today. It's always good to be gathered with your people. We're grateful that your promise tells us that where two or three are gathered, that you are in the midst. And so we rejoice in your presence. We ask that your spirit would lead us in worship, uh, that your spirit would take your word and, and apply it to the needs of our heart. And we pray as we leave here today that we would just go on our way rejoicing because we've been in your presence and we've been with your people. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you once again to stand. We're going to learn a new song that hasn't been done here for a while, or hasn't been done here, so we're going to introduce this to you, and we're hopefully you'll enjoy this.
Last time I was here, I got to sing this song with you, and we needed a piano player, so then we ended up, you guys ended up being the piano. This time we need a little percussion time, so you're going to be the percussion team, so let's have a little fun with this one.
Lord, I ask, Lord, as this season comes, comes to us in the next week plus, Lord, that we can be honoring, honoring the miracles that you do before us, Lord. I ask your blessing for each and every one in this room, Lord, your continued guidance for each and every one of us as we go about it each and every day, giving it to you, Lord. In your name we pray, and everyone says. Of what it is, they often set a chair behind me on Saturday evening, and now I have a chair behind me this evening. I think they think I'm getting old and I may need to rest if I preach too long, so hopefully. Appreciate Jerry leading music this morning. That's part of God's provision for us. Um, I don't know, some of you may not know, Jerry's my brother-in-law, and so as you might imagine, we have some awesome music times when we gather together as a family. And uh, that's, that's a, a blessing to us. It's amazing how God provides. Last night, with Paul being gone, last night Dave Cummings led music, and today Jerry, and so God takes care of us. I was taken by the, the words of that last song, even when we don't see it or even when we don't feel it, he's working. That's been something over these past months that, that God has just begun to really open my eyes to, I guess, that by the time I get around to praying about something, God is way out in front. And he's been putting things in place for the answer to that prayer long before it ever crossed my mind that I needed to pray. And so that's the, that's the cool part of, of working and, and, and living in a relationship with a sovereign God is that we know that uh, he's way out ahead of us. And we're grateful, grateful for that. Palm Sunday. The Sunday that we celebrate the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Scripture gives us in the Gospels, each of the Gospels have this specific account in their narratives. It's important enough that each of the Gospel writers felt that it needed to be a part of what they told about the life and experience with Christ. And within the context of that, we think of, of the crowd, the crowd that gathered as Jesus came into the city. And I want you this morning to think about, in your mind's eye, crowds. We've seen lots and lots of crowds on our TV screens and, and in our media sources over the past year. Lots and lots of crowds. I think of, I think of the, the crowd crowning or honoring a championship team. And the confetti and the enthusiasm and the joy and the cheering that goes along with that. And in contrast to that, I think of some of the other crowds that have gathered over the past year. And the angry voices and the things that we have seen and witnessed. The account that we find in the Gospels concerning the last week of Jesus' life and going into his resurrection tells us about both of those kinds of crowds. I was reminded this week in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 9, it says this, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And the reality is, as we look this morning at the two crowds that gathered during the last week of Christ's earthly ministry, those two crowds and those two anatomies of what made up those crowds 
are amazingly similar to what we have seen and witnessed over these past months in our society. And the reason why that is, is because human nature does not change. We all are born and steeped in sin. We're all prone to go our own way. We're all prone to be led astray. And so consequently, what has been will be again. The crowds in the Gospels and the crowds that we've seen in the past year are eerily similar. So this morning I want to start by looking at the two crowds. The crowd surrounding the triumphal entry of Jesus and the crowd surrounding the, the, the trial before Pilate. I want to start in Luke chapter 19, in Luke's account. So we're going to jump around in the Gospels. We'll, we'll start in Luke, but we're going to look at each of the Gospel writers and what they have to add about this particular, about this particular part. Luke chapter 19, the, verses 35 through 40. It says, They brought it to Jesus, speaking of the colt that he rode on, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And then skip down to verses 47 and 48. Every day he was teaching in the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. I want to read also a couple verses out of Matthew's account that tells us a little bit more. 21 verses 8 and 10. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Let's pray. Father, we ask in these moments ahead that you would take your word as only your spirit can do and apply it to the needs of our heart. Father, you know where each one of us is. Even those closest to, uh, to us don't know the, the deep recesses of our heart. And I pray that you would take your word this morning and you would apply that to those deep areas of our heart, areas in which we need encouragement from you, areas in which we need correction from you, uh, areas in which we just need to know that we've heard your voice and we've heard your mind on the matter. And so we ask you to do that for your power and glory alone. And I pray this in your name. The crowds, if you can picture in your mind's eye what that had to be like. This was a joyful celebration. This was people that were gathering not because of, of a promotion or, or campaigning or them being drawn in because of some publicity, but rather the joy of the atmosphere is what drew them to this day. There was excitement. There was enthusiasm. There was raised hands. There was waving palm brows. There were smiling faces. There was joyful praise. As they wound through the streets of the city, people 
came alongside the streets. They gained people, and they gained numbers as they went. Part of this was because they were living in a time in, in Jewish society in Jerusalem in which they were an oppressed people. They lived under the daily grind and cruelty of the Roman Empire. And Jesus coming into the city was part of the hope that they had that God was going to take them out of the circumstance that they were currently in. So this was a celebration of oppressed people that were beginning to see potentially the message of hope and renewal. I want you to contrast that to the crowd that we see standing before Pilate at Jesus' trial. Matthew chapter 27, verses 15 through 23. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. When the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew that it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to have Jesus and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two of you do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What should I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They answered him, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. There could not be any more contrast between the crowd on that Palm Sunday and that crowd the day of Jesus' trial. The joyful voices were replaced with angry voices, violent voices. The waving of the hands and the waving of the palm leaves was replaced with shaking fists and yelling and screaming and crying out to crucify Jesus. Two crowds, one we would call a gathering, one we would describe as a mob. What happened? What's the difference between the two? With only a few days in between, this, this wasn't like Jesus came in Jerusalem and then months later the crowd and society had turned on him and asked for his crucifixion. This was a matter of days. This was a matter of days. Why the change? I believe that we, have, we can gain some insight into the difference between the crowds when we look at those who made up the crowds. Let's look at the two conditions, the two heart conditions of those that were gathered in each crowd. First of all, I'd like to call those that were gathered on that Palm Sunday morning or that day of the triumphant entry, I would like to call them the convinced, the convinced crowd. Let me read for you John chapter 12, verses 17 and 18, and explain to you why that is significant. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. If you were a Jew or raised in Judaism, that statement would have 
significance, more so than to us as, as 20th century believers of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because those in Judaism that were faithful followers of the law, true worshipers of God, those that were knowledgeable of the Torah and all the traditions of the law, recognized that within the prophets of Old Testament Israel and within the traditions of the elders, that there was a list of things that only the Messiah could do and would do. And those things, there's, there's numerous things on that list. I found lists of five. I've list, found things of a list of seven. But it was known within Judaism that there was only, that there was things that the Messiah would be identified because of the fact that he could do. And I want to remind you of what some of those are. And these people, when they saw that he had raised Lazarus from the dead, that was significant in their mind because that was one of the things that only Messiah could do would be bring somebody back to life. And we know that Jesus did that more than one time during his earthly ministry. These people would have also known that Jesus was the fulfillment of several other Old Testament prophecies. The prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Though small among the clowns of Judah, one will come out of you who will be ruler over Israel. This crowd that recognized him as he raised Lazarus would also have known that he was born of a virgin, and that was part of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah's coming. They also would have been familiar with the verses in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, that said, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Notice that list. The blind will be able to see. The deaf will have ears to hear. The lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. All miracles that Jesus performed during the time of his earthly ministry. They also would have been familiar with Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 26, verse 19. But your dead will live. Lord, their bodies will rise Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning, and the earth will give birth to her dead. And then finally, on that day that he rode the colt into Jerusalem, that too was a fulfillment of prophecy from the prophet Zechariah. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So those that were gathered and gathered around Jesus on that day of the triumphant entry, they didn't need someone to tell them why they should rejoice. They didn't need a reason. They recognized that the very fact and the manner in which he was coming, coupled with the miracles that he had performed and the things that they had seen throughout his earthly ministry, they were convinced that this was not merely a good teacher. This was not merely a good person, but this was the Messiah. This was the one that Christ, that that God had sent to save them and redeem them. They were convinced. They were convinced. Compare that to others that were actually in that crowd early, that early crowd, but they were not convinced. Rather, they were persuaded. John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43 tells us about them. 
Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise of men. There were those that had seen the same miracles. There were those that had witnessed the same things that Jesus had done. His coming into the city in that manner. His virgin birth. His origins in Bethlehem. And yet, even though they believed, they were not convinced. The fear of people, the fear of the religious leaders, the fear of being ostracized in the religious community kept them from following along and recognizing him as a Messiah. You'll notice in the, in the verses that we read earlier concerning that mob the day of, of, this, of Jesus' trial before Pilate, the word persuaded is used. Because that crowd was not convinced that he was Messiah, and so therefore they were able to be persuaded that it would be best for Jewish society for him to be crucified and be put out of their misery. There were two consequences that came out of these two groups and these two crowds. One we find in Luke chapter 19, verses 37 and 38. We read that earlier. What was the cry? What was the words of their voices as, as Jesus rode into the city? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They accepted who he was. They acknowledged who he was. They recognized him as the Messiah. The other consequence from the other crowd, from the other people, was that of rejection. Let me read for you their final cries to Pilate on that day. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, listen to these words, His blood is on us and on our children. A total and complete rejection of who Jesus was and why God had sent him to earth. I want to look finally at, the two, at two realities. There's a significance about a crowd when a group of people gather together. There is a significance about the influence and the power and, and all the dynamics of what happens when they gather together. I want to draw your attention, first of all, to the power of the crowd early on, on the day of the triumphal entry. Matthew chapter 21, verse 10. We read that verse earlier. It said, on that day, the whole city was stirred. There was a power about that gathering. Even people that didn't, weren't convinced, that didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, were drawn to that gathering. 
because of the joyful hands, because of the joyful sound, because of the way that they were reacting and worshiping and acknowledging Jesus. There was a power for good and an influence for good within that crowd. Contrast that to what we see in Mark chapter 15 and Pilate's response. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. What motivated Pilate to do what he did? He knew in his heart that Jesus was innocent. His wife had told him, don't have anything to do with this. I've had a dream. Don't get involved in this. Yet what was it? It was the power and the influence of the crowd that persuaded him to turn Jesus over to be crucified. The power of the crowd. There's another account in this final week of Jesus and that, that goes along with Jesus' trial that also has to do with a crowd. A lesser crowd, but nonetheless a crowd. And that had to, has to do with a crowd that gathered in the Garden of Gethsemane. A crowd of soldiers, a crowd of religious leaders that came along with Judas to betray and to turn Christ over to be crucified. That was an ominous crowd, a dark crowd, and yet it had the anatomy of a crowd just the same. And the thing that, that always strikes me when I think of that gathering is I think of the way when Jesus was there with his disciples and they were a group gathered together. Think of the, the boldness that they felt as Jesus was there because of the group they were with. And think specifically of Peter and his response. Even though they were standing in the presence of Roman soldiers and religious leaders, Peter felt a power and an enthusiasm and a confidence because of that gathering. And what did he do? He drew a sword and he cut off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest in boldness and confidence because of who he was gathered with. Luke chapter 22, verse 54, tells us about Peter's response after Jesus was arrested and after the rest of the disciples had fled and went their own directions. There's a telling statement about where Peter was. Luke chapter 22, verse 54. Then seizing, seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest, and Peter followed at a distance. He followed at a distance. That phrase has to do with a physical reality, but I believe that there's a spiritual parallel to what that is. What is following at a distance? If we're following at a distance, it means that we want to be close enough that we know what's going on, that we can see the action, that we can see the activity, that we can be a part but at a safe place. Not where we will get caught up in the realities of what's going on or, or pay the consequences of whatever is happening out ahead of us, but it's a safe distance. 
It's a safe distance. And I can't help but think about that phrase with Peter. He followed at a distance. You know, he was convinced. There's, there's no question that, that Peter was in that crowd of those that were convinced that this was Jesus the Messiah. Remember, Jesus asked him point blank in Matthew chapter 16, Who do you say that I am? And Peter's response was, Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so even though Peter was convinced, yet when he was left by himself, and Jesus and the rest of the disciples had fled, and the crowd went away, and he was all by himself, his confidence waned. And if you've read your Bible much at all, you know that on the heels of him following at a distance was the time in which he denied Christ. As he was off by himself, left to stand by himself, away from the encouragement of the others and the influence of Jesus. The reality is for us, we have the same choices. As we enter into this week in which we celebrate and recognize and acknowledge the death of Christ and his resurrection, there are only two camps. There are those that are convinced that this was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Messiah of God, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And there are those also that follow along that are persuaded but not convinced. Those that are amazed at the teachings and the things that he did, those that as they gather with God's people, they have warm feelings of community and, and feel like this is a, this is a good place. I, I like the feeling when I get there. But the reality is, in their heart, they're not convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, that he came to die for their sins, that he is the only means through his sacrifice on the cross that we can live in a right relationship with God. Those that are convinced acknowledge him as they did that day as he came into the city as king. They yield their hearts before God in humility, recognizing that it's only through his death and the blood that he shed that we can be forgiven and made right in the eyes of a holy God. Those that are convinced that raise hands in worship, that acknowledge his presence and the reality of, of him in their lives, that recognize every single day that we live and exist because of his gift of mercy and grace. Those that are persuaded when tough times come the applaud and the thoughts of men cause them to be drawn away, cause them to follow at a distance. There's a significance about being convinced in our heart and the power of the crowd that too is convinced. You know, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, tells us of the importance of being part of the crowd, the crowd that gathers regularly to worship 
and lift up Christ. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I don't know of any other time in, in the, my history of walking with Christ and being part of the church that those verses need to be on the forefront of each of our minds. We've come through a period of time in which we couldn't meet for a while. And we came through a period of time in which we were limited in how we could meet. And we had masks and we have safety issues and, and there are those that are compromised and couldn't meet together. And so it's easy to fall into this mindset that I can watch it online. I don't have to get up in the morning. This period of time has caused us, has pushed us to not gather together physically. And yet the reality is there is a power and influence of good when God's people gather together. That can't be replaced by even a, a Zoom meeting or, or getting together. There's something about being in the physical presence of God's people, being in the crowd of those that worship and lift up Jesus as the Messiah that can't be replaced. And as a church, we need to fight for that. We need to make that a priority of being together with God's people, whether it's two or three that gather for coffee and breakfast, or it's a gathering like this, or it's a Bible study, or it's a life group. We need to be with God's people. And my fear is that that as, as a church, not our church specifically, but the church universal, that, that this time of the pandemic has, has drawn us apart. And there's lots of God's people that are following at a distance. They've moved back away from, from being actively involved and actively meeting with God's people. Some whose motives are totally pure, that, that their immune systems are compromised and they shouldn't be in crowds but others because it's just easy to not get back into the swing of things. We have lots and lots of things that are, that are buying for our time. You know, the reality is as society begins to open back up, we get, in a lot, in a lot, of, in a lot of ways, a clean slate. There's things that we spent time doing prior to that, that that we found out that really weren't that important. We didn't miss them at all. But there are other things that we need to acknowledge that that's part of God's purpose and plan for His church. And we need to make those a priority. Convinced or persuaded? Where do you stand this morning? And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, are you following hard after Him? Or are you following at a distance? If you're following at a distance, the, the good news is that Peter did that. He denied Christ. And at the end of the day... What do we find in the closing chapters of, of John's gospel? Jesus forgave him and restored him. Restored him fully. And he became a powerful instrument in the life of the new church after Jesus went. This morning as we close, I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads with me. And I think as we are on the, at the beginning of this 
Holy Week in which we focus our attention on Jesus' crucifixion and his, and his resurrection, that it's just a good time for all of us to, to examine our hearts and see where we are in our relationship with him. The most important question, are you part of the ones that are convinced that he's the Messiah, or are you easily persuaded? You've never trusted him as your Savior and Lord. You need to ask him to be a part of your life and accept his salvation. And then if you're a believer over these months that we've gone through, have you dropped back and begun to follow at a distance? And if so, Jesus wants you to come back up and catch up with him. To come back into that vibrant relationship with him personally and with God's people. And make a priority of being together and fellowshipping together. I just ask that each of us in our own mind would allow the Holy Spirit freedom to speak to us about where he would have us to be. Let's pray together. God, it's just amazing the similarities between the stories we've read this morning from 2,000 years ago and the images and the circumstances that we've seen around us in these past months. And it just reminds me that we're all steeped in sin we all have a sin nature, and that doesn't change the individual circumstances and, and the politics and those in power. They change, but the sin within each of our hearts doesn't change. And you alone are the way that that sin can be dealt with. The blood that you shed on the cross is the only way that we can be right with you. So I pray, Father, for each of us, myself included, that you would examine my heart and reveal to me any ways that I have taken a step back from following hard after you, from making it a priority to spend time with you every day, making a priority to spend time with God's people, not only for the purpose of, of enjoying the presence and the power of being together, but just so that we can be, I can be an encouragement to those that you place around me. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray that we would be a body that's convinced that you are who you say you are and a body that's following hard after you, right along behind you where you're leading and where you're going. And I pray this in your name. Amen. After the closing song, I'll up and give you a short update on the building. So. I invite you once again to stand up and finish that imagery that I had at the beginning with my little grandson with his hands up and a smile on his face. And the shouts of Hosanna meant save now. And the palm branches symbolized goodness and victory. Interestingly, at the end of the Bible, people will wave their branches once again to praise and honor Jesus Christ. Revelations 7-9 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes 
and were holding palm branches in their hands.
just want to take a few moments this morning and give you an update. As many of you know, we're are in the bid process with our building that God has given to us. And it's that, that process has gone a little slower than we anticipated for several reasons. Uh, there was a cold snap. Um, it took the crews longer than we expected to get the asbestos out. And then we had a couple snowstorms along the way, and those things all affect contractors and their ability to, to have time to do their inspections and bids. So over the past couple weeks, we have begun to sit down with the architects and look at the bids that have come in. And the first round of bids was a little over two and a half times what we had anticipated the cost to be. So those of you that are involved in business and buying materials and all those kinds of things, you understand the reality of that. So we spent a couple weeks and sat back down with the architect. There were some additional bids came in. Uh, we looked at the things that we thought that we could contribute um, as far as our labor and those kinds of things. And at the end of that process, we're still about twice what we had anticipated it was going to cost. And that's attributable to the cost of building materials. Um, those of you that have bought any lumber recently, a $2 two before is now over $8. Sheeting, steel, all those things. And along with that, we're challenged by the reality that um, over the past months, they've been pumping a lot of money into the economy, stimulus money. Um, people are spending that. <laughs> and so contractors are busy, and, and it's hard to find people to do work, and consequently that's driving the cost up for those kinds of, of work. What we want to do, and what are, has been our plan all along, is to take care of the things that we need to do to get into the building. Since that was a department store to start with, it was, it was coded that way, and as we're going to use it as a church, we'll be using it as a gathering place with larger occupancy, and so there's certain things that have to be done in order for us to get a permit from the fire marshal in the city to occupy the building. That has to do with the fire alarm and the sprinkler system, the adequate number of exits for the occupancy we're going to have, the HVAC system so that the exchange of air is appropriate the restroom facilities, the majority of those things require a contractor that's licensed to do those kinds of things. And so as a church, we wanted to let you know where we were this morning, mainly for the purpose of beginning to pray. As we opened that first round of bids, the thing that struck me over the next couple days is, as we all kind of <laughs> struggled with it, that, that, that was a really somber elder meeting, I can tell you that. Um, I think the, the one term that I heard over and over again, it just felt like somebody hit us in the stomach, <laughs> just because that was, it came as a total shock. But I also believe that there is a reason why those bids came in high enough that there isn't any way that we can sit down with a pencil and a calculator and figure out how we can pull it together. This isn't a surprise to God. Didn't catch him off guard. He wasn't taken aback by the fact that costs have went up over the 18 months that we've owned the building. The reality is where we are today is little different than when we prayed about the possibility of purchasing the building. We had about $10,000 in a building fund and over the course of a few weeks, God enabled us to buy that building debt-free. And so where we are today is really 
less proportionally than where we were then. As we started into the asbestos removal, the first thing that had to happen, the initial estimates on that were about $120,000. And so we began to look for some grants, and some, there was actually some grants available, and, and so we took bids, and the bid that we accepted was half of that. Pretty awesome. And then as we got into the grant process, since it was federal money through the DEQ, we came to a place in which some of the requirements, because it's federal money, um, there just was a conflict between what we believe to be true scripturally and what society says is okay. And so we backed away from that, the, the grant portion of that, not knowing exactly how that was all, all going to play out. But the reality is, because of the, the COVID funding and some of the things that are available for essential businesses, God has enabled us to receive a couple of those, uh, a couple of the loan forgiveness grant type things that has completely paid for the whole cost of the asbestos removal. So how does God want us to proceed? We ask that you would pray for wisdom and direction for the elder board as we grapple with the realities of this. Uh, we want to get through the Easter season. For this week ahead, the most important thing before us is ministering to the community that God's given us to minister to. And after that, that Sunday after that, we'll come back to you and we'll kind of give you some direction about where we believe God wants us to go. I'm a great believer in spiritual markers. That as you seek to determine where God wants you to go and what God's will is for a certain circumstance, you look back over where God has taken you and that becomes a way in which you can move forward. I don't think there's any question as you look back over the course of God's history with sunrise in that building that God performed a miracle for us to have it in the first place. He's performed several things along the way to allow us to be where we are. And I believe he has something in mind for how he would have us to be able to occupy that and, and move into that. I was taken aback this morning by the words that we sang in one of the songs, Waymaker. You are Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness, my God. That is who you are. And so over these weeks ahead, it's my prayer that God would prove himself to be those things to us as a church. That he will provide in a way that we will know beyond any doubt that it's of him and he receives the glory and the honor. So we covet your prayers beginning today and moving forward and sit back for the ride to see where God's going to take us and, and what provision he's going to make for us. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we trust you. We trust the fact that you're sovereign. We trust the fact that you're in control. We trust the fact that nothing surprises you. And Lord, as I mentioned earlier today, there's no question in my mind that by the time that we get around to praying about what we perceive the need to be, that you have already begun to work. That you've already begun to put things in place to provide for your people in accordance with your time schedule, not necessarily ours, in a way that will bring glory and honor to you. 
and in a way that we will bow in reverence and stand in awe of the provision of our God. And so we commit ourselves, first of all, to the mission that you've given us within this area to preach and teach and reach those that you've given, given to us to, to share with. And we're going to believe you for, for where we go with this building that you have given to us. We love you, Father. We trust you. We count on you. We look to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. See you on Friday for our Good Friday service. Even when you don't see that you're working, even when I don't feel that you're working, you never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see that you're working, even when I don't feel that you're working, you never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Even when I don't see that you're working. Even when I don't feel that you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Even when I don't see that you're working. Even when I don't feel that you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop working, waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Oh, waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. That is who you are. Who you are, that is who you are. Oh, that is who you are.